in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> Please be seated. I'm convinced that Jesus would not have been a very good parish priest. <laughs> Working in parish ministry means being pastorally sensitive to people's needs and situations. It means making things as barrier-free as possible to encourage you to be here with us on Sunday mornings. After being beat up during the week by your jobs or your financial concerns, by tending to health issues, by the coarse and angry discourse that surrounds us, or just by too much change in your life, after all that, folks want church to be comforting and nurturing. A good parish priest understands this. Apparently Jesus does not. Jesus and his disciples are heading toward Jerusalem and Jesus is teaching and preaching along the way. He's been healing and feeding folks and thumbing his nose at religious propriety. And so he's become quite the media darling. People have taken notice of his miraculous actions, including raising a young man from the dead. And the crowds traveling with him have grown and grown. You can almost hear Peter turning and surveying all these folks and saying, wow, Jesus, look at all these people. We must be doing something right if we're drawing this kind of crowd. And as if he is just noticing them for the first time, Jesus turns and addresses the crowd. Is he pleased with this big turnout? Does he affirm them for their wisdom in following him? Does he say, come all who are heaven laden, you are welcome here? No, he yells at them. He says, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. None of you can be my disciple if you don't give up all of your possessions. You just heard this read a moment ago, and your response was, thanks be to God. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> Can you imagine coming to our St. Michael 101 class, asking what it means to be a member of the church and being told, uh, you must hate your family, you must give up all your possessions, and you must give up your very life. People would be beating our doors down. <laughs> In 10 verses, Jesus manages to disparage the nuclear family, the pursuit of self-fulfillment and happiness, and the material comfort of hearth and home. Why would any of us want to follow this guy? We spend a lot of time focusing on Jesus's love and grace, as well we should. The gospel message writ large is Jesus' immeasurable love for us that manifests in his selfless death on a cross to heal our relationship with God. It speaks invitation and welcome. It offers blessing, arouses hope, and engenders courage. But there is fine print. And it is in the fine print of the gospel message that we are challenged to consider the cost of following Jesus. 
the place and time in which we live, especially here in the Bible Belt, makes it enticing for us to add Jesus to our lives like an accessory or an item on our resume. But that is not the role that Jesus is satisfied to fill. Jesus reminds us that living a Christian life means making him first in all aspects of our lives. So today, after turning and viewing the crowd, Jesus is asking us, are we a fan or a follower? Are we an admirer or a disciple? Jesus gives those of us who would be his disciple three challenges. So let's look at each of them. The first is this, if you do not hate your family, you cannot be my disciple. Well, we really need to get past this word hate. In Jesus' day, in his language, hate is not a violent, emotive word. It's a rhetorical device for emphasizing one thing over against another. So elsewhere, Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and wealth for you will hate one and love the other. It's not that we will viscerally and emotionally hate one and love the other. It's that we can only give one our primary allegiance. This is why Matthew translates this line as, whoever loves father and mother, son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is saying, I must have your primary allegiance. The relationships you have with others, even the people who are most important to you and are most dependent on you are subordinate to your relationship with me. There are times when we make hard relational decisions because of our commitment to Christ. We choose not to enable a loved one in destructive behavior. We intervene without being asked in an attempt to resolve conflict. We set boundaries for our children to teach them that the world does not revolve around them and is not about their immediate gratification. And we even choose to end relationships that sabotage our decision to, leave a Christ, to lead a Christ-centered life. Why do you think parents are so concerned about the kids that their children hang out with? Who we prioritize and spend time with does influence whether we grow closer to Jesus or move further away. Jesus' second challenge is this. If you do not carry the cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. There are many ways that we carry a cross when we choose to be a disciple of Jesus. The spiritual directors who I admire say that all spiritual growth comes not from adding on, but from letting go. We let go of all of those parts of ourselves that separate us from God. We let go of our need to be thought successful by the world's standards. We let go of our impatience and our need to control. We let go of our oughts and our shoulds, of our prejudices and our hatreds. 
we let go of the master plan for our lives so that there might be room for the Holy Spirit to come in and refashion it in the image of Christ. And carrying our cross means that we understand that being a disciple of Jesus comes with a cost. Leading a Christ-centered life can compromise our success on the job or our inclusion in others' invitations. We should not be surprised because the world's rewards are not based on kingdom criteria. Those who commit to being agents of God's work and presence in the world can expect for that to come with pain and sacrifice. For if it was easy to change a world which seems to be motivated by greed and power and appetites, we Christians would have done so long ago. Jesus' third challenge is this. If you don't give up your possessions, you cannot be my disciple. Really? All of them? My home? My car? My favorite pair of chicky pumps? I'd like to think that Jesus is just speaking with rhetorical flair again. But he did tell the rich young ruler to sell all that he had, give it to the poor, and follow him. And we have stories of the earliest followers of Jesus doing exactly this, selling all that they have, holding it in common and using it to care for the widow and the sick, for the hungry and the poor. So I guess Jesus really means it. As hard as those first two challenges of discipleship sound, this one, this one is the deal breaker for me. I know that I am unable to sell all that I have, give it all away, and totally trust Jesus for my day-to-day -day provision. And I bet I'm not alone. Who can do this? You might be relieved to know that apparently no one can, at least not in their own power. When the disciples raise this very question, Jesus answers, what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. So, yes, those of us who would be disciples are called to trust in Jesus more than our stuff. We're called to give up the illusion of control and security that our money and our stuff provides, and it is only an illusion. We're called to stop trying to fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts with shiny toys and exciting adventures and big bank accounts. Discipleship is a process. It takes time. It involves false starts and modest success. We journey toward Christ, sometimes taking two steps forward and one step back. We begin to live into the fullness of our humanity and to reflect the holiness that dwells within us. We are strengthened to face life's challenges and joys with a spirit of hope and love and peace. And as we are shaped by these experiences, our lives become a witness to the power of Christ's love. At the heart of discipleship is transformation. 
we are invited to mature in our faith such that we grow more and more into the shape of Christ. Over its 2,000 year history, the church has discerned much about those practices that help us mature in our faith. Increase the margins in your life, taking time to rest in God, to be renewed and to know him more. Listen for God who is constantly speaking all around us if we would only slow down and quiet ourselves to hear. Participate in a small group or formation class. In study and discussion and prayer, we work out with one another the implications of discipleship in the nitty gritty particularity of our own lives. And be here for worship. When we worship together, God is present to us in ways personal and corporate, in ways intimate and transcendent. Hate your family, carry the cross, give away all you possess. Where's the good news? I think it's hiding in plain sight. I don't think Jesus is trying to discourage us with all of this. I think he is loving us by being honest with us. He's saying, don't make the decision to follow me lightly. Count the cost. Life in me is a life you are absolutely created for, but you must read the fine print. Once you begin this journey, I will not let loose of you until you become who you truly are. Amen.